0: Welcome everybody to another episode of EM Over Easy. Andy Little here with my co-host Drew Calnow at Cord 2020,
1: New York City. Beautiful New York City. It's fantastic.
0: So we are here with two really special guests, Lois Swisher and Jennifer Clevin from Hackensack in New Jersey. And of course, our nocturnist turned to a day doc, midshift doc in Philadelphia, talking about second victim syndrome here on the podcast.
1: Yeah. Now, real quick, before we dive into this topic, want to make sure our listeners know about a couple things going on. If you haven't checked out our website recently, please do so. We've expanded our blog post with two awesome medical students from the medical school at Ohio University writing posts for us. There's an opportunity to sign up for an email list, list that is going out once, maybe twice a month that Tanner is curating some zany things that we're doing, reading, watching, listening to, and some awesome episodes we've had uh, pushed out recently. And that's available from the website. Of course, make sure you follow us on all the other social media sites too. So Lois, this is your fourth time on the show. You're like a veteran
0: at this point. I am so
2: excited, absolutely, I love this. It's one of my favorite things.
0: So what, what do you have for us today?
2: Well, I think our jobs are awesome, but they're also really, really hard. And there's this concept of second victim syndrome. Not everybody likes that name, but let's go with it. Because I think it works well. The first victim is the patient but then there can be the second victim, and that's the healthcare providers that experience things that are going on. And I see that much broader than a lot of other people see it. A lot of other people see it as, like you've made a mistake, or you made an error in a procedure, or there's been a lawsuit, and that big impact thing is second victim. But I think that there's more than that that goes on. And this was really brought home to me when I was out at ASAP, and I was introduced to Jen. Would you like to talk about what happened?
3: Yeah, I I was definitely experiencing what I didn't know how to label, which would have been the second victim phenomenon or syndrome. Um, I had had a couple challenging cases, and I was feeling really broken. And I... Was I knew I needed help, but I think I didn't really know where to look for help, and so I was at ASEP and I went to several wellness and resiliency meetings and tried to pick brains and network, and thankfully got introduced to Lois.
2: And that's exactly the way it was. There's a person I knew that came up and said, "Hi." I want to introduce you to this person. And I don't even think you knew her, did you? Sadia? Yeah. Yes. I had, had met her at okay. another
3: conference. Actually, at Cord okay. last year.
2: And, and she's like, I think you'll be good together. And that's all all I knew. I'm like, okay, good together how? And then this happened.
3: Yeah. And she was dead on because... Lois was in the middle of a conference and meetings, but still said, you know, let me finish this one meeting and then meet me in the hall and spent probably two hours with me in the hall, allowing, listening to me and really hearing me, letting me cry and inspiring me and showing me, I guess, a trajectory of how I can work on my own resilience and overcome. And what we now have kind of agreed that sounds fun is bouncing back from being broken Tell us about what happened. Well, it's kind of um, accumulation of several events, but started the first case that I had was a 32-year-old female who was uninsured her on her second pregnancy. That was about 21 weeks based on dates. And she came into the emergency department, and the thought was I was just kind of going to give her a blessing, and she would go up to L&D, and that was really all I thought I, my role was going to be. Instead, I found um, a young woman who looked terrified was hemorrhaging, and I immediately knew that I needed a consultant who didn't give me exactly the help that I was hoping for. And made me feel very alone and vulnerable and scared as I was trying to manage um, this very sick woman. They basically said, "Get an ultrasound. You don't know the dates. You don't even have a pregnancy test. You don't know if she, you don't you don't know anything if about the patient," which was very upsetting because I did know she was pregnant and I did know she was bleeding and I was concerned about preterm delivery, but they were not receptive to that and wanting more information at the time. So in frustration and also trying to stabilize her, I hung up the phone. Her blood pressure dropped to the 60s. She was hypotensive. I couldn't send her for ultrasound. I had to reconsult and still was met with adversity and not the support that we should be having for each other and our colleagues. Eventually, uh, shortly after, the nurse called me over and I saw that the woman was actually delivering a 21-weeker who was very alive. The baby was moving, attempting to breathe, you know, making movements as if crying, but not a dead fetus, a very, very alive fetus. That was super hard because I felt completely inadequate. I did not know how to resuscitate a 21-weeker, and the help that I called wasn't there. I eventually they came because the code was called after the baby was delivered and the management was appalling to me for lots of reasons. I think one, how I was treated as the provider um, requesting help from my consultant and two, how the patient was treated. Um, some of the words that were said to the patient were, Oh, this is just an abortion. It's not viable. And that really hit my soul because I've had three miscarriages. So Aside from me feeling inadequate that I wasn't helping this woman and that I didn't know how to help her the best way possible, I was dealing with in the background the fact that that was me. That could be me. That was that was somebody who wanted a baby who now is watching it squirm to death on a cold table while somebody says it's just an abortion. It's not viable anyway. That was pretty devastating. And I didn't know how to recover from it. I didn't know really who to talk to. I was initially completely just angry and wanted to blame the consultants and, you know, frustrated. I've done a lot more reflection now and I, I recognize that probably no matter what, the outcome was not going to change. This was not a viable fetus. and But I think the way that we support each other as colleagues um, could have made a big difference in how I dealt with the second victim phenomenon um, regarding this case. And so... That was something that I was motivated to kind of want to help other people work through. Shortly after that case, like within three weeks, I had another patient, a 32 year old woman who came in with back pain, uh, requesting opioids, didn't everything, nothing else works. I need dilated. I looked her up in our system to see how many times she'd filled. There was a concern for drug seeking behavior from the beginning. I informed her nicely that I didn't think it was in the best interest for me to continue to give her and enable her with this dangerous habit. And long story short, she put me in a headlock, brought me to the ground on my knees, and I had to have security pull her off of me and file my first police report against a patient who assaulted me. And Still had to get up and go back to work the next day after all of these cases, you know, after both of these cases. And then about a week later, as I'm going to another night shift, um, I get a call from my sister that my dad was in a rollover car accident, driving home after drinking at a golf tournament, uh, totaled his car, had to be taken to the hospital, mul- multiple broken vertebrae, large hematomas, probably the scariest phone call that I've ever had because as I'm still dealing with am I a good enough doctor? Could I have done something better? Also, my own emotions about being assaulted and, you know, struggling with my own reproductive challenges and then seeing... Knowing what it's like to see a trauma come in who's belligerent and rolled their car and intoxicated, knowing that I couldn't be there 2,000 miles away from my dad who was going through that and my family, it was really, really hard. I definitely felt broken, and I didn't know where to go.
2: And that's when you were given to me. <laughs> I think, because we're doctors and because we experience these things intensely, it does hit our soul and how we deal with them is not necessarily very good. We go on to the next patient. We come back for that next shift and we don't talk about um, how to deal with it. If you guys had situations that have hit you,
0: So as you were telling your first one, it was reminding me of a string of uh, bad bad encounters I had with miscarriages and how it brought up my wife and I. Again, I'm not the wife, but I remember the the sleepless nights and the crying and the self-doubt of that this was her fault and something that she did wrong. And for that to be very crass, I can see where I mean, as you were telling that story, I was immediately taken back to a string of miscarriages that I managed as an attending fresh out that kind of changed the way that I approached those patients. Because what you say matters, how you act matters, how you make them feel matters. And if I was crass that I could, and if I saw somebody else being that way, I would be very angry and it'd be hard for me to go back to work. And then the second one, I mean, it's, and unfortunately like this happens in droves, like it's all pretty close together. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that we deal with a certain level of people that just aren't very nice sometimes. You know, I tell every, I tell our residents all the time that we get people on their worst day. So that's the business we're in. It's because it's unscheduled care. They don't have time to get dressed. They don't have time to take a shower. They don't have time to get in the mindset of going to the doctor. We get them as real as it's going to get. And sometimes it turns nasty. Not having that bunch of scenarios, but having some similar. I can see where if those are all together, you, you wouldn't be alone in feeling the way you felt.
1: Any one of those is enough to put somebody into a tailspin. And now having to deal with all three episodes in rapid fire sequence allows you no ability to recover. It's just stacking and, and further repressing, which becomes harder and harder whether it's a a clinical situation, a life situation, a combination of the above, I think we've all been in a a position where it feels like the hits keep coming. This is particularly poignant. And I want to know how I can manage this better the next time it happens to me, because it will. If any of us think that this isn't going to happen to us again, it, it will. But it sounds like you have a mechanism for us to do better with it.
2: It's not only that it'll happen to you but it happens to everyone around you. I mean, we're here at CORD. I can tell you, there are a lot of people here. I don't know what their stories are, but something's happened to them, and in some way, they're broken, and we don't share that. Somehow, we keep that brokenness as something that should be personal and we should deal with, when I think, really, a lot of the healing comes from being with others, and being able to share our humanness. And when you hear that story that somebody else says, me too, it's like, I'm not alone. And we don't teach it to each other. And we're all going to go through it.
3: I think that was one of the things that motivated me to, you know, want to get help was I teach at a med school with um, sweet, idealistic, you know, med students that want to change the world and save the world. And the thought of them turning into a consultant that would treat me or a peer or a colleague or a patient the way that I saw people being treated was really heartbreaking. And I thought, what can we do to help these young med students to not turn into these kinds of physicians? Like, what could my role be? How could I maybe use this as something positive to go forward was kind of where my head was at.
2: I didn't know I was walking into that situation. I thought we were talking about how to give a talk. (laughs) And we're going to sit down for a few minutes, give a few references about second victim syndrome, and off. There you go. It's a conference hallway meetup. Within seconds of looking in Jen's eyes, I'm like, oh, we are at a different place. And she is broken. And you can't rush that. But there is stages of recovery. This is uh, out of the second victim syndrome uh, work that's done. There's three that sort of go on right at first, and they go on all together. And um, it's this chaos and accident response is the first one, intrusive thoughts, and then trying to restore your personal integrity. And I think a lot of us know, like when you've had those bad cases, and all of a sudden in the middle of the night, you wake up and you, you start thinking about the patient and what happened and what you did, and it just keeps coming back. You can't get rid of it. And you think about why you should have done, so- like, could you have said something different? Or could you have gone and made another phone call? You're in this swirling area. And then the trick is trying to get out of it.
3: Yeah, I definitely was swirling. And I mean, I think for months, I the, the, the baby actually took two hours to die. That's how alive it was. Um, again, with no resuscitation, no supportive care, no comfort, I felt like. And for months, even when I closed my eyes at night, I could see that.
2: And that can be hard to, to get out of that cycle because you, a lot of people want to keep it close. They don't want to talk to other people. And the healing, hopefully, sometimes it can make it worse, it comes in the next two stages. The last stage is you either survive, you thrive, or you drop out. You move on to something else. And I think our goal is to try to have everyone thrive. And these middle two steps, four and five, are the tricky ones, and it all depends on the other person. Okay, 90% of it. But the first part of that is enduring the Inquisition. And the hardest thing, I think, from getting out from that swirling is to reach out and wonder what questions are going to be asked.
3: Did you find that? You know, questions that were asked or that I kept asking myself that I was worried that other people would like, why didn't I make a better case? Why didn't I get OB down there quicker? Why didn't I, you know, what else could I have done and could I have handled it better? Or should I have pulled them aside and said, hey, you shouldn't be talking to a patient like that or me? I don't know. I I guess because fortunately in this case, I don't think I did anything really wrong and I don't think anything I could have done would really have changed the ultimate outcome. I'm grateful because I know that's not always going to be the case.
2: Yeah, I think those questions that you have in your mind are can be very judgmental and you want to protect yourself to be ready for what uh, is coming at you. And I know I did this with my daughter's um, brain tumor. It was 17 years before I showed the MRI because I was afraid what people would say and how I would respond to that inquisition. And I think what can happen is if the other person is mindful of the way their questions come off, the way it sounds judgmental, and be more compassionate, to think of the way that they would, how they would feel if they asked that question. They may change the tone a little.
1: This is a particularly difficult thing to think about because not only is there the the personal relationships, the conversation that the two of you had, but I have no doubt that there was some type of hospital follow-up, system follow-up regarding the case. They are not nearly as sensitive. The people asking the questions do not typically care as much about your emotional wellness and stability what they care about is is there was there a process problem and is there a process improvement initiative that we need to take to prevent whatever lapse may or may not have happened during that situation almost like any other peer review or case inquiry you become a victim as well not only because you're dealing with the emotional response of having to respond to those things and deal with the situation itself but now you're essentially being attacked a second time as to why you didn't make this go better and hearing you talk about it, it sounds like you did absolutely everything right. And maybe the other people in the room didn't or maybe there was nothing that could have gone better. But sitting through that again doesn't do anything to help you recover and probably buries you deeper into the, the second victim syndrome
0: yeah and I think it's important that you know, like you said, there are certain parts of this that you're going to have to go through that are painful. Your hospital is going to get involved. this might turn into an m M&M and m case from the others from the other party's perspective. I'm sure the o b service talked about this numerous times to their service, to their their prospective students and stuff. but I think it's also important for you to find that person, and you it sounds like you found it in Lois that you can just give this to them as here's the burden I need help bearing, and where there won't be judgment and there won't be the critical voice that you're going to get from somebody else. And if you don't have that person, find them soon, because you will need them your entire career to where you don't get stuck in this spiral.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. The It can be made worse. The questioning, the response that people have. And that happens a lot. I mean, M&Ms can be na- nasty. They may not be uh, so um, compassionate, which is why there should be this... Sp- Fifth stage, which is obtaining emotional first aid. And if we know that some of the times people aren't going to be real good at their questions, like uh, now it's fine when I show my daughter's brain tumor and people goes, wow, that's gigantic. How did you know it was there? I'm like, yeah. If the first hundred times somebody said that, I felt like the worst mother in the entire world. Now I'm like, yep. It's really big, and I think I can go through those questions because I found people, friends, colleagues, and professional help. I'm back in EAP, Employee Assistance uh, Program, because there's been a lot of things that have gone on with me recently, and with that, it's six sessions for us, and sometimes you just need to have that little bit of Band-Aid, that emotional... First aid that tells you that just gets you over the over that Um, it may not be something forever, but to talk about it.
3: I know for sure that was important for me. Like having you know, I was grateful that we were introduced and that you were able to take a couple hours and listen to me cry. I remember. I hadn't really told the story that much because it was too hard. And every time I would tell any of those stories, I would be crying and that's, it can be embarrassing and uh-huh. <laughs> challenging in its own ways. So um I really hadn't told that many people and, sh- and Lois asked me like, how many times have you told this story as I'm sobbing in a hallway in a conference? And I, you know, she said, you need to tell it more because it will help you heal to tell it more. So I kind of made that, Part of the mission for the lecture that I gave, and I called it Bouncing Back from Being Broken, and I shared it with all of my residents and used it as a way for me to heal and to share the story and to hope and hopefully open the doors for them, because I know that the intern who just coded their first patient and the med student who's, you know, never seen a dead person, and everybody else is going through similar things that we need to be able to talk about, and so... I suggested and threw the idea out at the end of my presentation of starting a resiliency committee for our residents. And, um, it's been fairly successful so far. We've had multiple uh, meetings where other residents have come and we've given, we've uh, now got funding for journals. So we'll have like journal entries to maybe prompt people to, and then you can bring your journal. We start off with like a meditation and then we kind of all go around and reflect on things that have been difficult and. It's been a way for me to try to move on from thriving and to sur- uh, or f- from just surviving into thriving by sharing this just like you have with me. It's
2: amazing thing. You feel like being broken is the end of the world and there are times when that brokenness opens up something and gives you these times to talk with the medical students and the residents and this new light springs forth. I'm so proud of you.
3: (laughs) Thank you for your help.
1: (laughs) It's a recurring theme when we have Lois on the episode that the, the ultimate or the penultimate solution to a lot of these issues is becoming more vulnerable ourselves to talk about what we've been through because it becomes healing not only personally, but then provides a healing outlet for those that we're talking to and to realize that it's okay that we all feel this way. I don't think there's a listener out there that hasn't or won't experience something similar in their career and, and not that we wish that upon anyone because I, I wish for my residents and for the rest of my career it would be uh, roses and, and great encounters but it won't be and there's going to be ebbs and flows so knowing that other people go through this and that there's a pathway to recovery there's people like Lois out there that can help guide us along the way is such an important thing to have
0: and I think the key thing is if you're listening to this is each of us can be a Lois is that when each of us see this stuff go down is to reach out I remember as a early on as a resident, I had a really, really bad case. Don't need to go into specifics, but it was the fact that I got texts from multiple senior residents, even ones that weren't there. They heard, "Hey, I heard last night went to hell. Can we go get coffee?" "Hey, I heard you had a bad. I heard you had a bad shift. Are you available to talk in the next couple of days?" Just the act of that text message, even though I didn't take everybody up on the the offer, just knowing that other people heard the story, were impacted by it, and then thought to reach out is pivotal in this because I'm sure at times you felt very alone. Yeah, absolutely. Because you probably were.
3: Yeah. And and I'm actually on a peer review committee now and I stress and emphasize to everybody, you know, we're supposed to kind of reach out to whatever team members were involved in the case that we're evaluating. I always say, like, make sure that one of the first things you say is, I'm really sorry that you're going through this. This must be really hard. Because I just had somebody that, you know, discharged a patient and an hour later they came back in cardiac arrest and we couldn't get ROSC. You know how terrible it feels to know that you discharge a patient who came back dead, and so not pointing fingers, not saying what were you thinking, not saying, but just saying like, how are you doing? Like, are you okay? That must be really difficult. Is something that I think we all need to be looking at when we're talking about M and peer review committees, cases. You know, really saying like, how are you doing? Like, that's that's hard.
1: Change the way we approach this situation a little bit to make it easier for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, not an inquisition but actually a recovery.
2: The Inquisition is, is hard, and that's where people fear. And when you talked about each one of you could be a Lois, it's like, I'm, not, I'm nothing special. I'm really nothing special. This, all it takes is to listen to people and to tell them they're not alone. And anybody can do that. We can all be there for each other. And instead of being the one to try to fix it, or to teach and correct the errors. In that time of brokenness, just to say, I'm here with you, and you're not alone, we can change everything.
1: Lostera, I think you are both incredibly special. And thank you for sharing the story with us. It's uh, very moving and a very important conversation to have. I think it will make us all better going forward. So To our listeners, hope you enjoyed and take a lot out of it, too. There is going to be a plethora of show notes about this. um, And please just make sure you're taking care of each other.
2: Love you guys. Thanks. The EM over easy.